everyone, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. My name is Aaron Johnson. And I'm Rustin Perret. Every two weeks, Russ and I get together to discuss topics in the field of ecology, natural history, evolution, just the stranger side of nature in general. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, this time around, we're talking about nature reserves, right? We are talking about nature reserves, yes. Although I do have to say, I'd like to welcome all the new listeners we've gotten, which is roughly double than what we've usually had. So hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for stopping by. Welcome to the show. Yeah. I mean, you know, 14 is still twice as much as seven, but... Hey, we have had a 100% increase. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take it. And that sounds mighty impressive. You don't have to list exactly how many we had initially. You could just, you know, talk about all the new listeners and go from there. Keep it positive. Yeah, how was the research for this episode? I assume you already had a topic in mind. Actually, I had several. There's just a lot of cool nature reserves. A lot of very cool habitats out there, and I'm very glad that a lot of them are protected so that future generations can see them. Definitely. Definitely. With that being said, I think you're up. Okay. So this is one that requires just a little bit of a background. Okay. Just just a little bit. I'm here for it. Okay. Go so ahead. the Korean War was fought between North and South Korea between the years of 1950 and 1953. It's a bit of a non sequitur, but keep going. So the war began when North Korea invaded South Korea following a series of border clashes and rebellions in South Korea. Okay, right, right. So to sum this whole thing up, this was a period where the North Koreans fought the South Koreans. The North was backed by communist countries like China and uh, the Soviet Union, and South Korea was backed by the U.S. and many other allied countries. So basically, Korea had been divided since the end of World War II. The Soviets controlled the North, and the South was controlled by the U.S., and the 38th parallel would divide the two. This was just until the Korean governments could kind of get itself back into a position where they could be autonomous again. Because prior to this, Japan had actually conquered all of this. Japan will do from time to time. As they do. You know, this is just to prop them up, you know, give them a little time to get back into the swing of things. And if it seems like a bad idea, it's because it was. Because you have two very different governing systems and you just split the country in half. Yep, go figure. It didn't really work out. You gave each uh, one of them a different side. And as soon as the Cold War era of things began, tensions grew quickly. Really? (laughs) Yeah, shocker. So the North Koreans invaded and conquered most of the peninsula. And at this point, the UN got involved and passed a notion to aid the South Koreans. And together, they were able to push back the enemy lines. I am oversimplifying this a lot. Back to about the 38th parallel. And this was over the course of about three years. Afterwards, an armistice was signed and the conflict ceased. Right. And along this line, and what I'm going to be talking about is the Korean Demilitarized Zone, or the DMZ for short. This is around the 38th parallel and is about 250 kilometers or 10 miles and about four kilometers or two and a half miles wide. And I know this is called the demilitarized zone, but this is anything but a demilitarized zone. It is quite the opposite. The area is riddled with armed guards and controls, walls, barbed wires, mines, and watchtowers. Anything else is more of a demilitarized zone. You should call Chuck E. Cheese a demilitarized zone. Yeah, this is more of an uber militarized zone. (laughs) This is a militarized zone. Just take the D out of it. (laughs) Well, yeah, but that doesn't quite do it justice. It's... It's one of the most militarized zones, really. It's one of the deadliest places on Earth. Yes, correct. 
Anyways, there are basically no people in this area. There's a little tourism, at least on the south side. And there is a joint security area where the two sides can meet and occasionally hold a meeting. And, you know, a village or two. But for the most part, there's no people. As I said, it's the most dangerous place on Earth. Wait, you're telling me there's no tourism on the north side? You know what? I can't say for certain. There might be. <laughs> there might be one guy who's really passionate about it. Can't imagine why people wouldn't want to go to North Korea. There was a Russian guy that just ran through once. That was a big international incident. Wait, what? I yeah, have... he just sprinted across. The entire DMZ? Uh, not that. There was a bridge. He, he just went across the bridge. And lived? I th- I think he lived. Of course, there was a a conflict broke out and some soldiers died, but somehow he he got through. Wow. That's that's amazing. It is amazing. This is actually a perfect area for wildlife. So you see, by excluding people from this strip of land, the two Koreas have essentially created one of the best nature reserves in the peninsula. I'd argue one of the best nature reserves on Earth. Nature flourished in this area. So, of course, it was war-torn, divided, you know, shrapnel, bombshells everywhere. But over the past 60 years, plants and wildlife all gradually came back. Right. Nature healed, yeah. Nature did heal, and this inspired the South Koreans to establish the DMZ Ecology Research Institute. Now, I really wish I could have actually read some of their papers on Korean. None of it translated very well for me, just with the Google I was using. Yeah, that's uh, using Google Translate is always a bit of a risky proposition. Yeah, but from what I did kind of decipher from their website, they've been monitoring the DMZ for the past 20 some years. And they do a survey, I think about once a week, where they'll just go and, you know, document a lot of different birds in the area, whatever wildlife they see. There's a separate group that handles plants as well. Okay, kind of interesting, but also pretty dangerous, you know? Pretty dangerous. However, there is a special civilian control zone. That's the only area they can access. So the broad range of it, they can't touch. Wait, what do you mean civilian controlled? There is a portion of the DMZ that you can access with permission, but the rest of it, no one touches at all, period. You don't go there at all. With permission from? The South Korean government on their side. Oh, you don't need the permission from both governments? Well, I mean, it's on their side of it. I don't, maybe they have permission from the North. Maybe the North also has their own ecology institute. Uh, I haven't heard anything about it. Yeah, uh, a North Korean ecology institute would tend to be secretive, probably. Just spitballing. The DMZ, this covers mountains, forests, swamps, lakes, and tidal regions, and has a wide range of wildlife. About 6,000 plus species have been cataloged, just in the 20-some years. It also includes some pretty rare habitats, so wetlands, there's not a lot of them in South Korea at all. And high moors, which is a type of wetland in high elevations, I don't think there's any in South Korea. It is only in the DMZ, it just happens to be there. Oh, wow, okay. So they can't preserve this anywhere else. So I'll give you some example of just brief little thing of all the wildlife there. They have musk deer, golden eagles, foxes, goral, which is kind of like a type of goat, wildcats, martens, and otters, which apparently move freely along the river between the two sides. It also hmm. happens to be a great nesting site for cranes. 
Seven out of the 15 crane species in the world are native to the Korean Peninsula, not exclusively. Oh, wow. Okay. Two of them, the red crowned crane and the white napped crane, are both very endangered and both have a safe spot to overwinter in the DMZ without any fear of humans bothering them. So essentially, these are two endangered species that are benefiting from the fracturing of the Korean Peninsula, basically. A little sad, but yes, I read that they overwinter in the wetlands that are loaded with mines, Yeah, which is, you know what? Uh, they're pretty confident no one's going to bother them. <laughs> Not worth it. No poachers there. Yeah, well, I mean, the other thing, too, is that I guess depending on how sensitive the mines are, the birds might not be heavy enough to set them off, right? I'm assuming that also because birds aren't that heavy. I don't know what the exact weight is required, but if this is like an anti-personnel mine or an anti-tank mine, either way, they're probably not setting it off. I mean, it doesn't make... I mean, you're probably not going to run tanks through mountains, so it probably wouldn't be an anti-tank mine, right? I guess. I don't I don't know the exact layout. I know it covers... There's a broad range of habitats in this strip because, I mean, it goes across the entire peninsula. Wait, isn't this your topic? I do not know the exact topography of this zone, and most people don't. Do you want to send the researcher in there to figure it all out? Well, apparently they already have. All of this all this research is the equivalent of like someone looking through a peephole. You know, that that's as close as you can get. Oh, really? oh okay. Because you can only get so far into the zone before it's no-go. Like, it's for your own good, you don't go any further. Oh, okay. You kind of made it sound like they were, like, sending people into the zone, and now... They do. It's a it's a special part of the zone. It's just, like, the little fringe of it. Oh, okay. So most of this is kind of, like, deep-sea research. Yeah, most of it... Well, you're not even sending in drones or subs. None of that. That gets shot down. Right, right. Of course. This is you just kind of looking at the edges... And just inferring from what you see in the edges, you kind of have to guess what's going on in the middle. Okay. You, yeah, you made it sound like they were sending in people who were just like, had white flags strapped to every inch of their body. The secret <laughs> is they just run really quickly. <laughs> they like, give them a notepad and tell them to write down everything he sees. It's like, ah, oh, there's a crane. Bullets whizzing <laughs> over his head. It's like Marlin from Finding Nemo and the Anemone. And we go out. And back in. And then we go out and, and back, back in. in. And then we go out and back in. Maybe just one more time. Just one more time. So yeah, the, the research of this is the equivalent of just poking your head in, look around a little bit, back out. Okay, but they've discovered some really interesting things, huh? Yeah, like uh, with these cranes, that's a huge one there, especially because their population is estimated to be, for the red crown cranes, about 2,000. Pretty low. This very low. Right. Yet they've spotted hundreds overwintering at one point in these wetlands. Unable to get a proper oh. estimate, but that's a huge chunk of the population. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a Definitely. significant chunk and just this strip of land right there. Yeah. Wow. And you said this is only like, only like two miles wide. Two and a half miles thick. It's 250 miles oh. wide. Yeah. Thick. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I meant to say. Uh, another thing is the cameras caught an Asiatic black bear cub. This is the first sighting of one in about 20 years. What's really significant about this is this is a threatened species, and it has a lot of issues with poaching because 
Asiatic black bears are used in a variety of traditional Chinese medicine. Uh, I know one thing in particular, I believe they drain the fluid from their gallbladder or their liver. It's a very sad practice involves putting the bear in a cage and, I mean, draining the fluids from it while it's still alive. Oh, wow. Yeah, that that sounds kind of horrific, actually. Yeah. Yeah, of course, that's not the only cause. Habitat loss, climate change, they're all not doing it any favors either. But not only do we know that these black bears are in this DMZ, they're breeding. Their populations are rebounding. I mean, we just saw a baby there. Okay, but how do we know definitively that the population is rebounding? I mean, we know they're breeding because we saw a a baby, but how do we have any kind of estimate of how the DMZ is impacting their numbers? I couldn't get any precise numbers, and I really wish I could have, but I did have the hurdle with translating some of the stuff. Right, right. But in some of the interviews I read with with the researchers of the DMZ Ecology Research Institute, they talked about how this was one of the first sightings of a black bear cub in 20 years. I think that might be in just the Korean Peninsula, which that's really significant then. If that's the first baby you're seeing in 20 years, that's nothing to scoff at. And we can... Rest assured, knowing that this is a safe area for them to breathe, because I don't think any poacher is going in after them. Probably not. It's probably the most well, well, yeah, it's probably the most well-protected anti-poaching area on the planet. Exactly. I also mentioned that there is a DMZ botanic garden, and they talked about a variety of different plants that they've researched. Just a bunch of scientific names. Wait, uh, whoa, 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 hold on. Somebody has a garden in the DMZ? So they're another research institute that focuses on the plants, but they actually do have a seed bank and a greenhouse right along the edge of it. I believe just outside the CC. Oh, okay. Okay. But they still go in and do research. Again, just kind of poking their heads in. They've claimed they found rare plants such as Pogonia japonica and... Patrina Seniculifolia. Wow, the, these these must be the craziest botanists in the world. I mean, honestly, to do your, like, your life's research in the DMZ is insane. I'm pretty sure that if like you took Matt Damon's character in The Martian and said, hey, would you rather be trapped on Mars alone and almost die or do your research in the DMZ? He'd be like, when can I start going to Mars? <laughs> He'd go back. Right. Send me <laughs> you back. You could have brought him back home, given him the choice. He'd go right back to it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had talked about how this is a great place for wildlife because no people are going to get to that. It might even be a better area for plant conservation. Right, right. Well, there's a story to this. In 1976, there were two U.S. officers, Captain Arthur Bonifas and First Lieutenant Mark Barrett. Uh, along with a small group of Korean Service Corps soldiers, and they went to trim a poplar tree in the JSA region. Mind you, this is the shared region between the North and the South. Sometimes the guards are facing each other directly. Well, that didn't sit too well with some of the North Koreans. I believe a lieutenant on the other side they nicknamed Lieutenant Bulldog did not like that, that they were trying to trim a poplar tree. So he went out, Argument ensued, skirmish, and the North Koreans actually attacked and killed the two U.S. soldiers. 
Because they were trimming a tree? They were trimming the tree. Yes. Dude, the white tree of Gondor wasn't that well protected. Holy crap. Yeah, you can't touch this. Evidently, I think this is more of just a rumor. It was later claimed that the tree was planted by Kim Il-sung, which is why the North Koreans were so defensive of it. I think that's bullshit, personally. Yeah, the North Koreans have been known to fabricate things from time to time. I don't I don't even know if the North Koreans made that up. Maybe it was the, the U.S. that made up that bit. I, I don't think it's too conclusive. And you think if it was a sacred tree, they put a plaque on it, or a sticker, a tag. Right. Some kind of marker. Piece of tape, a caution tape, something. Needless to say, this put everyone on edge for a bit. There have been a series of uh, conflicts, even though there's still technically an armistice. There's been a couple like firefights over the past 60 some years. But diplomacy prevailed. War did not erupt once again. But the U.S. was not happy about the death of its men who were unarmed. I mean, they were armed with hatchets, but come on. (laughs) <laughs> what are they going to do with that? I don't think they're lobbing them over the wall. <laughs> even even then, like, the only person who should, like, have their hatchet access, like, seriously regulated by international law is, like, maybe Chuck Norris. Outside of that, you're probably not going to do too much damage. Actually, I think some of the North Koreans have one of the hatchets. I don't know if it was used by them or the U.S. soldiers because they all fought with hatchets and shovels. They have them in a museum on the North Korean side, allegedly. Anyways, this prompted the U.S. to engage in Operation Paul Bunyan, in which, (laughs) yeah, aptly named, the U.S. made a show of force by sending a team of 813 infantry 27 helicopters and a convoy of armored vehicles all arrived just to finish cutting down the poplar tree. (laughs) They didn't didn't even cut it down all the way. There was still a stump for a long time. Yeah, this happened. Uh, there's a plaque, or the I believe the stump has finally rotted away, but there is a plaque there if you really want to visit it personally. I don't think it's worth it. This is insane. The only other time that I've heard about the health of trees almost causing a major geopolitical crisis were when the cherry trees were being ravaged by beavers in Washington, D.C. Was that a thing? Yeah. This is a thing like, I want to say like 15 years ago or so. They were beavers living on the Potomac River. And there were these like, you know, very, uh, yeah, very appealing looking cherry trees right there on the bank. And so the beavers would come up onto the bank and start chewing into these like, you know, cherry trees that were given to us by the Japanese. And so like people were freaking out because they were like, oh my gosh, the cherry trees are going to die. And so they put up like all these metal cages around the cherry trees and everything. It was the whole thing. That could have been the first unanimous bipartisan solution. Just send all of Congress out there with a couple rocks. (laughs) <laughs> just start throwing it at them. Yeah, I don't know, though. Beavers are tough. They, yeah, beavers I, are tough. I don't think the rocks would have would have discouraged them, honestly. I feel like they would have carried on. They could have lobbed them right back with the tails. True. They could have just used the tails as like a giant tennis racket and just whacked them right back. Yeah, we, we cannot prepare for that counterattack. We, nope. we have nothing for that. They have the ultimate Uno reverse card. <laughs> they do. Anyways, if this is all you have to do to cut down a single tree in the DMZ, I think it's safe to say the trees are pretty safe. Yes, very. 
So the DMZ Botanical Garden, as I mentioned, are actually currently replanting some of the zones. So there have been things like landslides, and they do have some invasives. The areas that they can access along the edge, uh, they are replacing with indigenous grasses and small plants. The only caveat is they can't plant anything that gets too tall because it can't obstruct the military's view. Okay, makes sense. So they, you know, they're working around it a little bit. But if a tree does happen to, I mean, as trees do, a stray acorn gets there and starts to grow, who's going to go down and chop it down? I'm not touching it. Yeah, I was history repeats itself. What happens if something does get too tall? I mean, from what I've read, there is still very dense forest there, and there's also mountains there. I think they just have to deal with it. Like, do you send out a little drone with a hatchet? It's going to get shot down. I don't know. I mean, what else are you going to do? You send in the beavers, I guess. (laughs) Sick them on just this one tree. In fact, one concern with the DMZ Botanical Garden is actually, as the two sides have agreed to demine the area, remove some of the landmines that's terrible Mm -hmm. for the plants it really tears them up yeah yeah so it's a little sad actually resolving the conflict hurts the plants whereas keeping it in this no man's land stalemate keeps them alive yeah it's it's almost like the the whole area is better off without people yeah and That kind of brings me to my end point here. While it's not the primary function, the DMZ has become a wildlife sanctuary. One of the best, I'd argue. Even if it's riddled with mines, underground tunnels, and the occasional propaganda speaker duel. It just does happen. The primary reason for this is, despite all the military exercise and some research, most of the DMZ cannot be accessed or viewed. You can't touch it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly one of the most well-protected areas on the planet. And I think that's why it's one of the best nature reserves. And because we can't go that far into the zone, this is actually promising because we can only look on the edges and what we see on the edges is really good. Imagine what it's like in the areas we can't touch. It's probably pristine. It's probably what the Korean Peninsula looked like hundreds of years ago. It could be. I mean, it's also possible that you know, the wars 50 or 60 years ago destroyed a lot of the forest and the the area is still in some kind of late successional stage, you know, and it hasn't reached its full peak. Um, I will say of all the rare plants and animals they've cataloged, I said it was about 6,000 species, about 100 of those found are threatened at least. Others are vulnerable, oh. endangered, critically endangered. Okay. And almost half of all the endangered species in Korea have been documented in this zone, which is, again, that's really good for a nature reserve. Granted, Korea, landmass-wise, if you both the north and the south is not a huge area, I don't think there's a lot of nature reserves that can claim that about half of the species that are threatened you can find there. Probably not, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe some some island preservers or something like that. I guess some islands is the only ones you get away with it. But even Yellowstone, I don't think could claim that. There are even rumors of large animals like tigers or leopards. And these are large carnivores that have been extinct in the region for years. The tiger, I believe, is the national animal of South Korea, despite not being there anymore. And we don't have any visual evidence of them there. And I don't think we're going to go in to get DNA either. 
but there are evidence of paw prints and claw marks in the area. Wait, their national animal is an animal that doesn't live there anymore? As far well, as we know. It doesn't Scotland have a unicorn? Yeah, yeah, but at least with Scotland, they decided, okay, we don't want to pick an animal that lives here because we don't like any of our animals. And so instead of picking an animal that lives somewhere else, we're just going to pick something imaginary and go with it. I can kind of respect that. (laughs) For South Korea, that's an imaginary tiger because you're not seeing any outside. Right. But it's not it's not imaginary everywhere. You know, like there are other areas of the world that can be like. We have your national animal and you don't. You're just setting yourself up to be made fun of. It would be a little bit like the United States making its national animal the woolly mammoth. Like we used to have them. We don't anymore, but hey, they're kind of okay, cool, it right? It did not go to extinct that long ago. Still, kind of the same principle. And even then, we almost lost the bald eagle there for a second. DDT. Right. But we didn't. We didn't. So I guess that makes us better. And we can I don't know about I don't know about infinitely, yeah. but at least no. we still have them. Yeah, like. we still got them. But with the DMZ, there's hope. I'm not saying it's definite. I'm saying it's a possibility. You know what? If they return, that would be incredible. So there have been efforts by South Korea, at least, to classify this region as a bioreserve, which is essentially like a nature reserve. I haven't been incredibly successful. I believe they were only counting the CCZ region which again is just a little bit of the fringe that they can go into, not the broad area of it. Wait, are you telling me there's a lot of red tape associated with the DMZ? Yeah, who would have thought? That's crazy. And credit to North Korea, they have had some efforts on their end also to, you know, make some agreements to fix it up a little bit. Okay. Uh, Like I said, there is talks of a joint demining process, even though that's not great for the plant life. Right. Right, but in the long run, it's probably... In the long run, you probably don't want that sitting around too long. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're Ron Swanson, you really don't want something like that in your personal space. I mean, it could be awful for the wildlife if all the mines just have an expiration date and they all go off at once. I don't know how mines work. That's beyond my comprehension. I don't know either, but I'm assuming it's a little different than like a gallon of milk in your fridge. <laughs> I mean, right? The jury's Probably. still out on this one. <laughs> Probably. I'm just guessing here. Like I said, I have no actual experience with mines. So Kim Sung-ho, this is the head of the DMZ Ecology Institute. And he described the situation as being, well, just kind of sad all around. As the two sides slowly make peace talks and agree to further develop things like road or uh, railways, you know, this is great for the two countries healing and possibly unifying once again, but it's hurting the environment. The reason this is a great nature reserve is because there are no people there. The best way to do it is to just build a fence and keep your distance. Yeah, it's like there was a 60 year long pandemic that occurred only in this one thin stretch of Korea. Just kept everyone out. In his own words, he said, it's a sad reality that we have preserved the area because we can get killed if we go inside, not because of an ethical sense of duty to preserve the nature. He's got a point. Yeah, that's a that's a home run right there. And like I said, sad overall, Korean War was by no means a tame conflict, devastated millions of people's lives. There are people whose families are still split across this line and they can only see each other sometimes once a year. 
that's yeah, that's that's horrible. But something good did come out of it in the end. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's I mean, silver linings and all, but still. Yeah, silver linings. And whenever the conflict truly does cease, the DMC might not be the sanctuary it once was. Uh, even if they try and establish this as like the best nature reserve they can, national park, whatever, people are still going to go there. And that's still going to muck things up. Yeah. I mean, think of any of the big ones in the U.S. You think they don't have issues with tourists? They absolutely do. Oh, for sure. For sure. The tragedy of the commons is most certainly a thing. So South Korea has a lot of issues with fragmented habitat. It's a highly urbanized area. So the nature reserves they do have are very small, which if you want to preserve biodiversity, it's better to have a bunch of really big things than a bunch of really small things. No, really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) It's better to have a couple really big things than a bunch of really tiny things. Okay. Yeah. I think that's what you meant. Yeah. I I realized that. (laughs) That's what you meant to say. And of course, North Korea has a lot of issues with uh, mining and logging, a lot of industrialization, stripping away all the biodiversity up there. Mm -hmm. But this little zone in the middle is almost a perfect wildlife paradise. And so we can learn two things from this. One, sometimes something pretty good can come out of something really bad. And two, the events of the Lorax might have been very different if you just gave the little dude a gun at the start. All right. Very cool. Very cool. I didn't think of the DMZ as really a wildlife paradise, but I that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. It's surprising. I, there's actually a couple others similar to that, but I think I'll keep them in a back pocket for another day. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing about those. But in the meantime, it's now my topic. Yeah. What do you got for me? All right. So when you wanted to discuss nature preserves, I had in mind that I would pick some kind of picturesque place in a little known part of the world that few people would know about. Something obscure. Mm -hmm. As we often do. Right. Right. That's kind of the whole point of the show is that we try to pick more obscure topics. It turns out that the place I picked was smack in the middle of Mexico. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about the Monarch Biosphere Reserve. Do you know why I'm talking about this area? Is it protected by the cartels? Not officially. Do you know why we protect it? Uh, Does it have something to do with the name? It does. Monarch Butterflies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this site has a major significance for the Monarch Butterfly. So, a bit of background on Monarch Butterflies for those of us who are unfamiliar. Most people have heard of them, but I think a lot of people just kind of see them as these cool looking caterpillars that they raise in elementary school. And then eventually they'll turn into these bright orange butterflies and get released. And it's kind of a cool little project where you learn how caterpillars and butterflies work. So yeah, the kids learn about the caterpillars. Caterpillars grow up and be free from harm and all kinds of predators and everyone wins. Well, unless you're the milkweed that's stuck in the classroom, but... Not great for the milkweed. Can't all be winners. I feel like what most people think of when they think of monarch butterflies. But that's nowhere near the whole story. So monarch butterflies actually undergo one of the most remarkable migrations in the animal kingdom. At least in North America, east of the Rocky Mountains. And this means a lot coming from me. Someone who literally did a whole podcast bit on bird migrations and why they are so incredible. 
Uh, personally, I think the birds still have the edge, but the monarchs are a close second, and they do make a very strong case. And he's going to spend the next 20 minutes undermining all of his previous podcast work. <laughs> no, 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 no. The bird migration is still really, really unique, and the mechanisms that they use to actually make that insane trip are bonkers. But the monarchs, in their own right, also have a truly remarkable migration. And that's because for monarch butterflies, their migration is a multi-generational affair. Monarch butterflies will start the migration and know they're, and I, I guess, I don't know if they know or not, but they're only going to make it part of the way. Their kids are going to carry on and then their grandkids are going to carry on from there. And the whole cycle takes like four generations. Yeah, which not a lot of animals do that. No, no, that is incredibly rare. A lot of animals migrate, but not like this. Right. Migratory patterns are usually undertaken by an individual multiple times throughout their life. Generally, you almost never see a multi-generational migration like this, which is why I say that it's one of the most incredible migrations on the planet. Pattern of migration kind of goes like this. Once spring hits, they'll start moving north through the southern United States where they'll breed and lay eggs on milkweed plants. This generation, known as generation one, then will die off. Then the second generation from those caterpillars will continue to move north, populating their breeding grounds, which include much of the eastern United States and parts of southern Canada. And this trend will continue as the monarchs keep moving north for about three more generations. For a lot of these butterflies, they only see a small part of this migration. The adults in these particular generations only live for about a month before they die off. In some cases, it's two weeks. In some cases, it's six weeks, but about a month. They're not living very long at all as adults. They're just kind of migrating, and once they get to their destination, they're breeding, and that's pretty much it, which is a hugely unusual concept for a lot of people to grasp in terms of how we travel. Imagine if you started a road trip, and then once you got halfway through it, you had a baby at a hotel, dropped it off at the daycare next door, and then died. And then your baby carried on the journey once fully grown. You're on the road trip. You hear the kid in the back of the station wagon go, hey, when are we going to get there? You kind of chuckle and go, we? Oh, (laughs) no, no, no. (laughs) There's no we. This is a you trip eventually. (laughs) Good luck, sport. (laughs) You'll get no directions from me beyond a certain point. Trust your genes. You'll get directions over my dead body. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a really depressing family vacation. This is just the life cycle of the monarch butterfly. They'll do this throughout the summer up until about August when shortening days and other environmental factors trigger their migration south again. This migrating generation is different in that the migration triggers a state of reproductive diapause where they do not reproduce and are focused solely on migration. So they're just trying to fly south. They funnel their way south through the United States until they reach central Mexico. Uh, and the reserve, which is the focus of this place. And this generation of monarch butterflies, instead of living about a month, will actually live about nine months because um, they're not focused on breeding. They're just focused on migrating. And then once they reach their wintering grounds, they're just kind of hanging out. They're not trying to expend. They're trying to expend as little energy as possible while they overwinter. And they all overwinter in this one area of central Mexico, which is known as the Monarch Biosphere Reserve. The Monarch Biosphere Reserve is a piece of land filled with OML fir trees in the mountains 
where the butterflies will congregate by the millions, perhaps even billions, to spend the winter. During the winter, the butterflies will cover the trees, and they turn the entire forest orange because of the swarms of butterflies. So the butterflies are literally covering every inch of the trees in this forest during the wintertime. That would be an incredible sight to see. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. I noticed pictures of it, but firsthand, that'd be amazing. I know. It would be absolutely mind-blowing. This annual phenomenon could actually have helped spawn some of the traditions surrounding the Mexican holiday of Dia de los Muertos. Because the millions of butterflies that are coming south are said to be the souls of the dead returning to our world. So that's a major part of their holiday that they celebrate around the same time as the arrival of the monarch butterflies. So it's a major cultural touchstone in Mexico as well. Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, neither did I until I was doing this research. I didn't know the connection. I thought you were going to say just a, a big swarm of them came and just picked up a kid once. It's really sad. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. No, no, nothing like that Pick at all. And clean. <laughs> the clean. Yeah, the butterflies will come in such numbers that their weight actually bends the tree branches. And when you consider how light a butterfly is, which is usually less than a paperclip, this becomes crazy to think about. That's a lot. Imagine how many paper clips it would take to bend a decent sized tree branch. That's the kind of weight of monarch butterflies that are visiting this area every winter. And they congregate here because they cannot survive the winter further north as larvae, unlike most other butterfly species. So they have to migrate. They're one of the few butterfly. I think they're actually the only butterfly species in North America that migrates in this way. And the moist, cool environment of these forests allows the butterflies to conserve energy without drying out and wait out the winter before they fly north again in the spring. However, they only like the south-southwest-facing sides of the mountains, as these are areas which are hit by moist winds coming from the ocean. The air is then forced up by the mountains, keeping one side wet and the other side dry. So, it's the rain shadow effect, basically, that's happening here. And the butterflies stay on the wet side so that they don't dry out while they're overwintering. An estimated 70% of all eastern monarch butterflies overwinter within this one reserve in Mexico. I'm just going to pause to let that sink in for a minute. And how big is this area? Not that large. I think it's about the size of your typical nature preserve. It's not that large at all. And it contains, yeah, 70% of all eastern monarch butterflies. I do say eastern there because there is a difference between the eastern and western monarch butterfly populations, uh, and they're separated by the Rocky Mountains. Western populations have their own overwintering grounds in Southern California, which, to be frank, are less spectacular because western population isn't as large, but the general idea is the same. Both populations kind of follow the same seasonal pattern. They just kind of do it on opposite sides of a mountain range. Only about 5% of all monarchs overwinter in California. So the Western population is significantly smaller than the Eastern population. Oh, yeah. Which makes sense just based on like a geographical comparison of the two areas. But there is some interbreeding that happens over the mountain range, which is why they're still said to be one species. But the migration patterns are different on each side of the mountain. That's interesting to think about. This means that about two-thirds of all monarch butterflies on the planet spend the winter in this one spot in Mexico. Again, to put this in human perspective, imagine if two-thirds of all the residents of the eastern United States 
migrated south to Florida each winter. Think about how overcrowded that would be. Yeah, we'd definitely be bending the buildings. Are we also clinging to trees in this scenario, or do we get an Airbnb? Probably. I mean, <laughs> you just run out of space. Right, exactly. Where else are you going to go? <laughs> and when I'm thinking about this, it kind of makes me think that in some ways, we do have, depending on how you define alien life, we do have alien life on this planet because we have life that exists in such a different manner than we do. And that's such a different thought process and pattern of life that it is almost alien to us. It's difficult for us to put into our own terms. And when we do, it's different to the point of being hilarious. Like the road trip. Right, exactly. Given the significance of this small area to monarch butterflies, as well as its cultural significance, it was set aside as a reserve by the Mexican government in 1986 and has been designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But once March rolls around and the winter has ended, the butterflies leave the mountains, head north again, and the migratory cycle starts all over again. So is it every year they go to this forest, or does it alternate? Nope, every year. Every winter, they come back in the fall. They spend their fall in these one mountainous area. They cover the trees, hang out all winter, fly back north in the spring. So is there like multiple swarms, I guess, moving in different directions at once? Yeah, they spread out when they're migrating because they cover basically the entire eastern United States. But once they fly south, they're all congregating on this one area of central Mexico. So don't lose that forest or you lose all of them. Pretty much, yeah. Or you're going to be reliant on the ones that are in California to repopulate the whole continent. And let's be honest, you, you kind of made them sound like they're a little lame. I did? No, I just I just thought it'd be funny. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Like, you said, yeah, we got a little bit in Southern California versus this massive reserve covered in monarchs in Mexico. They don't compare. I mean... Yeah, they don't. I mean, just in terms of the sheer number of butterflies, the one in it's Mexico. It's like climbing a mountain in Florida and going, wow, that was incredible. They don't have mountains. I guess, but I'm really not seeing your point here. What, you're talking about mountains in Florida? Like, <laughs> what? Aaron, they don't have mountains in Florida. You know that, right? They have a singular mountain. Are you talking about Space Mountain? Because that's not a naturally occurring <laughs> phenomena. Damn it. <laughs> whole argument's out the window. Okay, let's say like you spend your whole life on a yacht. You know, like you're vibing on this yacht. You're taking it everywhere. And then one day the yacht sinks because no one was taking care of it. And now you're taking a rowboat around everywhere. Uh, oh, oh, okay. That's like comparing the two monarch things. Uh, yeah, one is significantly better than the other that was my point the whole time okay then why did you start off talking about mountains in florida i thought it'd be a good example uh, i thought wrong <laughs> sorry no no that, that was not a good example aaron okay well regardless it sounds like it is very important to keep that forest intact absolutely very very important and i'm glad it has the protections that it does but yeah, that's my piece. And I will say the monarchs are endangered now. I believe so, yes. That was just in the past five years, I think. That's a trend that's sadly emerging with a lot of migratory species. 
because yeah. of uh, a thing that plays a major role is phenotypic mismatch. So a lot of migrations are triggered by things that aren't changing. Things like length of the day, for instance. But a lot of the seasonal patterns of the things they rely on along their migratory routes and in their summer habitats and in their overwintering habitats, the seasonal patterns of those things are triggered by temperature. So it causes this mismatch where the migrants used to arrive right when their food was emerging, but now their food has already emerged a few days or even weeks at this point. And so there isn't as much of it available. So their migrations aren't timed the same way that they were to allow for them to maximize their presence in their summer uh, breeding grounds or in their overwintering grounds on the other side. So that's a major factor. Human development is another factor too, right? They don't have as much habitat, both where they summer and also along their migration routes. Those migrations become that much more difficult. And, you know, migrations like that are already incredibly stressful. So the fact that we've, you know, destroyed a lot of that habitat makes it that much harder. And so those populations are going to decline. A lot of migratory species are declining. And sadly, the monarchs are one of those. Yeah, way to leave on a positive note. Yeah, exactly. But at least their overwintering grounds are well protected. Yeah, we got that locked in. Right, right. We did a good job with that. But yeah, that's my piece. All right, well, really cool. Yeah, liked it. So, that being said, you got any ideas for the next episode? I thought we said beaches, right? We said that at one point, but I think you kind of poo-pooed that idea. I, I found something. Oh, you did? Yeah, I found something, yeah. All right. Well, yeah, let's do beaches. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, let's do beaches. Kick off the summer season in style. Oh, yeah. Perfect timing. Exactly. Next time will be beaches. I'm excited. All right. You want to take us out? Yep. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like or review on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can send us an email at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or souppotpodcast at Twitter. All right. Sounds great. And I'll see you on the beach in the next episode. I'm Rustin Perret. And I'm Aaron Johnson. See See ya. ya.